To left center, deep, gone! Brewers lead it! And a swing and a miss, he struck him out! Down the line, and that's the ball game! Hey Brewers fans, welcome to another episode of Brewers Unfiltered. I'm Brad Ford, social media manager, and I'm joined as always by the constantly entertaining Tim Dillard and the sensationally wise Adam McAlvey. <laughs> Guys, a lot has happened since the last time we spoke. Can I, I'm sorry to interrupt two seconds in, but do you, do you prepare those platitudes ahead of time or do they just come to you? Uh, yes, is the answer. Sometimes I prepare them. Today it was a little preparation. You know, uh, being a father of a newborn, <laughs> I'm not as quick as I normally am. So there was a little preparation today. A little behind the curtain. <laughs> okay, good to know. Thank you. Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead, please. <laughs> no, no, no. It's okay. Because a lot has happened since the last time we talked. We haven't even really had time to catch up personally. But, you know, it's just we played a lot of games. There was a double header yesterday. The team has not had an off day. They've been on the road. They played some interesting rivalry matchups, and including the sweep of a double header yesterday, Adam. Uh, that was a long day. I left my house. I, I was not in St. Louis, so I missed the I missed Tim there. Uh, I left my house at 7 a.m. and I got to the hotel in Chicago at about 12:15 a.m. So that's a day. Yeah. But uh, two wins. Uh, I I don't think I saw the Jim Henderson double. We'll talk. I know we'll talk maybe a little hater today, but I don't remember the Jim Hater the Jim Henderson two saves in one day. I'm gonna ask him about that uh, today a little bit. Uh, to jog my memory, but that was that stood out for me. Yeah, that's a highlight of the year so far. Seeing Josh Hader run in for the second time in six hours. And honestly, with how safe Craig has been with him since taking over the closer role and not doing the two innings, mentally, I thought, okay, who's coming in for the ninth? Like it can't be Hader. And then he comes out, and I'm like, oh, this seems to go against the entire way Craig has used his bullpen. Tim, can you get into kind of how difficult it is to do something like that? Well, I, I think I've done it, but not at obviously that level. I did it in the minor leagues, probably, you know, pitched the sixth or seventh inning. <laughs> Maybe the ninth. I have no idea. <laughs> oh, my God. Dillard is coming back out for the sixth and the second <laughs> Everybody, game. grab your bat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's just... You know, one thing, if it's if it's back to back games where, you you know, there's 30 minutes in between the game and you grab a couple hot dogs and then you're back out there. That's one thing. But the day night doubleheader does give a little bit of leeway. What you do is you just kind of blank everything. You totally get back down to just shorts and T-shirt. And then as the game builds back, you just get going again. You know, you have a, a chance to kind of recharge your batteries a little bit. But what Josh Hader did is is more than just batteries. I mean, he's pumping 98, 99 last night. After doing the same earlier in the day, it's it's it shouldn't be normal. I think he's just completely built different. Um, one of my highlights was the the picture on Twitter <laughs> with him and Jim Henderson and uh, Aaron Ashby in the background. That made me chuckle. It still makes me chuckle. It's an incredible photo. There's a lot to unpack, you know, to unpack from that. But um, just what he brings, he would not be out there if he couldn't be out there. It's the same when Devin Williams threw three days in a row. Uh, he would not have been out there if he didn't say, I want to be out there. You know, that's so we're talking about why he's been so careful. Craig Council been so careful with Hader um, in probably if it was up to him in some regard, he would have said no. But I think Josh Hader said, I want to be out there, brother. And so that's why he was. <laughs> <laughs> they said they, they they said they thought about doing that in New York. Uh, they said a couple of years ago, I don't there was a wasn't there a doubleheader in New York last year as well. Anyway, yes, there was a day where they had 
thought about doing it, and then he warmed up in the second game, but then it, it, the game just changed and it didn't happen. So it's been something on his mind. And, you know, look, it's it's the evolution of a baseball player, and this guy has evolved more in, in a more fascinating way than any player I remember in terms of, I mean, we've seen guys switch roles starting to relief or whatever, but to evolve from a starting pitching prospect to this long-inning weapon, reliever of the year is a long-inning weapon, to morphing into a, a you know a closer, a more standard closer usage. It's been really fascinating, and it's it's all on him and the work that they put in because um, it's taken him a lot to get the body to the point where he could even think about doing something like yesterday. And then to throw harder, that, that's the other thing that stood out to me, threw harder in the second game than the first game. So that was um, that was pretty good stuff. And look, it was like, what a day. Like, that capped off. Besides an all-star going on the injured, another all-star going on the injured list, you had two guys called up to the big leagues for the first time in Strzelecki and Barker. You had Tyrone Taylor homer in both games, Hader pitched in both games. Oh, Ethan Small, the top pitching prospect, made his major league debut. Then the guy who was the top pitching prospect before graduating, Aaron Ashby, struck out 12 and, and almost matched the franchise record for strikeouts by a lefty. He had the first two hitters in the seventh inning on two at two strikes. And I was ready to be like, you know, matching Eric Lauer and Teddy Higuera. And he just didn't have the put away pitch in the seventh, but that was a day. There was plenty to write about and talk about. So good timing. Everybody. Yeah, and wasn't there uh, three pitchers who recorded their first major league strikeout yesterday? Yeah. The Cubs, the, the, the Cubs like PR guy who was making the announcements. Well, in game one, it was, it was major league debut against major league debut. First time that's happened in Brewers history. And I think the second time for the Cubs, and in the first inning, he's announcing first major league strikeout. And it's like, well, I mean, duh. <laughs> so Mike Vassallo, our friend Mike Vassallo, the Brewers PR man, if you ever want to ir- I'm going I'm to put this out there publicly and hopefully people start doing it. If you want to irritate Mike Vassallo. You're giving his phone you, number? Yeah, yeah. Here's the cell <laughs> number. You you, oh. uh, you use extraneous wor- words. So like uh, when, when, they do the, uh, when they do the announcements in the press box about a guy's pitching line, you know. He pitched four innings. He retired, you know, he surrendered 10 hits. <laughs> uh, he allowed five runs. And, and if you go on and on, and you drive him crazy. So yesterday, the announcements of the first major league strikeout were driving him. He was like rolling his eyes and going bonkers. So it was a great start to the day. Sorry, Mike. Uh, yeah, it is always fun to tease Mike a little uh, because he's a little easier to tease than <laughs> some others. But Adam, you mentioned, you know, the Brewers now have two starting pitchers who were all stars last year on the IL. Yeah. And their their pitching depth is being tested. That's why we have the scenario that happened yesterday. What should we expect while those two all stars are on the shelf? Chaos. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, right, it turned into Batman. Yeah. And we, we talked to Woodruff and Mike Fasalo, hero. This was uh, this was going the extra public relations mile. He got Woodruff on the phone because he was back in Milwaukee. So me, Sophia Minert, and, and uh, Kurt Hogue from the Journal Sentinel, he got him on his speakerphone in the dugout after we, we had been called down right before game one, back down to the field to get that news. They made that roster move maybe an <clears throat> hour before first pitch. So he got Woodruff on kind of speakerphone, and we all huddled around. And he was he, he quantified this as good news. Like, of, of the scenarios that were out there, this was okay. And, and I think he feels like it'll be a two-week deal. Now, look, it's his drive leg. It's a pitcher versus Willie Adamas. So there's probably who's more impacted by this, a, a shortstop or a pitcher. There's probably arguments for both. 
but I think they're pretty confident that his is going to be on the shorter end versus Freddie Peralta, which is long-term. We don't know exactly how long, but Tim, I don't know if you got a feel from that in San Diego. I, I, you know, to me, it's like no one said August, but, but that's sort of where my mind is of, of where he's back in order to try to build up for a potential postseason. So they can, they, they'll have to cover, I think a, a couple of weeks, hopefully before Brandon Woodruff is back. And tomorrow, Wednesday is the first day where they'll have to do it. And as we're recording here, we don't know their um, their plans for that. And maybe it's like a Brent Suter day. Maybe it's a uh, Jason Alexander day. Um, he's with the team on the taxi squad. So there's like different things they could do to cover that start. Uh, but it, But my point in rambling on and on forever is that at least for Woodruff, it's looking on the short end. So that's a good thing. Yeah, I just wrote down months. I wrote down months when they talked about Freddie. I think best case scenario, it's going to be after all-star break. Worst case scenario, you know, it's probably late August or, you know, mid-August before he's 100% back out there. But for Woodruff, I I mean, it's better to get it out of the way now. And plus the team is doing well. You know, I think it's, you know, if the team was hurting, it might be like, well, can you pitch through this? Is that, is that what that looks like? But right now they feel like they could take on that burden a little bit and, um, the team shows no signs of letting up. So for him, it's the same thing. Get 100% healthy. I think that's what we've seen maybe differently in years past with different teams, teams I've been on, where it's like, let's just keep playing through this, you know, because we have to get to a certain mark by a certain time and you're the only guy we have at that position or whatever it is. And I think whatever the the way this team is set up, the depth is there. It's like, let's just address this stuff. I mean, almost tediously, like we, we've watched Willie Adamas out there on the field quite a bit and we're thinking, man, he's ready to go. And then it's like, here's a rehab assignment. Yeah. And you're kind of like, Oh wow. Oh, I thought he was closer than that. I think they just, I wonder, yeah. I wonder if there's any analytics in that, you you know, because they're, they're keeping better track now across baseball and the organization about injuries um, where it's, they're, they're really tracking recoveries in like a data-based way. And it's, it's like, do you, is it better? I think about this at the end of last year with Willie Adamas when he was dealing with the quad. He was like at 80, 85% for a long time. And do you play him at 80, 85% or do you really, really let him get as close as you can to 100 before putting him back out there? And like, that's an art. There's no black or white. And I just wonder, I agree with you, Tim, that it seems to me like they're airing much more now on the side of getting closer to 100. Well, I, probably because it has to do with timetable, right? Like, let's deal with this in late May, early June, as opposed to start doing it in August, right? Like, if August, you may have to push a guy a little bit more. Or September, hey, we got to push you a little bit more. And guys know that. Guys are like, <laughs> if this same injury happened, do you think he'd be on this long if it was if it was September 15th? Probably not. So I think that takes, you know, if you're going to get your injuries, get them out of the way. You know, it's part of baseball. Yeah. You you can do everything you can and, and try to avoid it. But a lot of times it's just unavoidable. But the way the Brewers are addressing it is overly cautious, which is probably a good sign. Now, I'm not one to buy too far into baseball jinxes or anything like that. But I think it'd be important to go back to our episode where Adam's stat of the week was zero IL moves. <laughs> <laughs> well... Isn't that the one where we were all like furiously texting each other, like right before the podcast came out because like they made the move right as, as the podcast was coming out immediately. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Oops. 
Uh, it is not Adam's fault. Please don't harass him on Twitter. He is not a dingus for doing this. He is innocent. Uh, but I think it was here in Chicago where someone called me a dingus and that whole thing began. Good timing. It's one of my favorite running Twitter bits. And it's one of the great payoffs of following Adam on Twitter. Aside from great articles, great baseball information, it's the little things that pop up that are hysterical for years to come. Sweet sassy molassy. <laughs> That's how I read it. So that's how I read your tweets. Oh, we're so stupid. <laughs> yeah, stupidity's half the fun. But with all these injuries, we have a lot of guys coming up to pick up slack. We've talked a little bit about it, but Ethan Small came up yesterday, made his major league debut. Tim, how do you think his debut went? I mean, I think if we look at recent history, it's pretty good compared to uh not to pick on him because he's so good now, but Ashby had a much more difficult major league debut. But still, two innings and two-thirds, we saw the issues with the walks. Can you kind of walk through what you saw from him in that first start? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's it's got to be a little bit of nerves, but I, I thought he did a great job. I mean, you're going to Wrigley Field. That is not an easy place to pitch, even for a seasoned vet. So for him to kind of go out there and attack it, he did the best he could. The walks were probably the only issue. Um, but you start looking at, you know, kind of overall what you're getting is, you know, maybe there's a chance he goes back in the bullpen when he comes back up next time, you know, to kind of feel a little bit more comfortable. Like we've seen the Brewers do that kind of stuff. I think this right here was they had him. They probably, if they had their way, would have waited a month before they called him up just because they could have. And so this is an idea of going, okay, well, we were going to wait on our timetable, but we're going to call you up. We're going to do this. And I thought he did a great job. I honestly did. I, th I thought his command suffered at times, but just his delivery, uh, you almost think he can get away with his fastball. He had 11 swings and misses. Uh, that right there kind of shows you what he can do. Uh, seven, I believe, were on fastball, but um, that's where the majority of the strikeouts came from. He just has a really good fastball, too, when you start mixing the other stuff and feeling more comfortable, because it is different. AAA is different than the big leagues. It's hard to draw it up, what that looks like. It could be little things with the baseball or the mound or the environment or the energy. Um, but I think that was about the only thing. I, his fastball for me was electric. I was just going to say, for me, I, I it, it's why I love baseball, because we're talking about this great fastball, and it's 89 to 91. It, it's like what lefties used to be <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> back in the old days of 2008. Um, Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, it, it, there's different way, you know. There's different ways to skin the cat, and and he does it with the uh, with a fastball up in the zone that's deceptive, and a great changeup. And I asked uh, as many of his AAA, you know, the guys who'd seen him in AAA before the doubleheader yesterday, just to, for an Ethan Small story. And my favorite was from Keston here, and I led or, or had it in my uh, account of the doubleheader yesterday. They were in Jacksonville a couple starts ago. And they, the Jacksonville Marlins affiliate has a third baseman that's a really good hitter, hitting 380, and showed bunt in his first at bat, struck out, and then bunted in his second at bat, and he moved up to second on like a wild pitch or something. And Hero was playing second base, and he said to the guy like, "What are you doing bunting? You're hitting 380." And th this player said, you, "You don't understand. None of us can see his changeup. So it's it's deception. It's playing those two pitches off each other, and." Ethan Small pitched yesterday to the scouting report. When he doesn't get chase, he's it's tough for him. He he doesn't have the 98 to blow guys away. So he is going to have to really um surgically expand the zone with with the stuff he has with the the fastball changeup and the slider he's really been working on. And the Cubs did a good job of not expanding. 
and that led to that 39 pitch inning. So it was a uh, tremendous learning experience for him. He had 21. He said he left 21 tickets. So just a, a very cool experience. And look, it's always better when they come back and win the game. You're able to go back with like a great feeling. You contributed in your own way to a win. And I just thought there were flashes of him being very good. And, you know, you look at that rotation at, at Nashville and now the Brewers in need of a starter. There is an opportunity perhaps for Ethan Small to make a couple more starts. I know this sounds kind of like looking for something to be good, but I actually thought it was very impressive how that inning, the third inning, didn't become significantly worse with how things were set up. I thought that was, aside from the walks, it was kind of proof that he was still keeping hitters off balance and not really allowing the situation to collapse in on him and get to the point of exploding. And Trevor Kelly. Like, let's give Trevor Kelly some love and give Miguel Sanchez yes. a lot of love Sanchez for covering two innings yeah. in game one because that set them up for game two. Um, you know, look, it's it the way Council put it, that was just a great team day. That's what he said at the end of the day, and it, and it, and it really was. And, I mean, Hader gets – I wrote a whole story about Josh Hader saving two games – he gets all the glory, but those middle guys really set everything up for the Brewers yesterday. Absolutely. You know, talking to another guy who's still basically a rookie and has very little experience at the big leagues, but is starting to make a name for himself. Aaron Ashby threw six innings yesterday, had 12 strikeouts. Are we seeing a breakout year from him, Adam? Uh, well, let's maybe let him get a few more starts under his belt, but that was a huge performance in game two. You know, innings are everything uh, at that point. And he covered them extremely competently and um, had the strikeouts going. I don't know. I've said this before. It just seems so simple with him. Throw strikes. When he's in the strike zone or around the edges of the strike zone, he is really, really good. And I remember standing with him and Brandon Woodruff together asking questions for some kind of story, probably best shape of their life in spring training. <laughs> and Woodruff is the one who said that. Like, it's so, it's so, when, when Aaron Ashby is at the bottom of the strike zone in the zone, he is very, very talented. So uh, that's what he did yesterday is he threw strikes and that was a big assignment. I, I think that was a big assignment. You put Woodruff on the, on the injured list, uh, you cover pretty significant chunk of innings from your pen in game one. And yes, you got a roster move in between for a fresh arm and Luke Barker. Uh, so there was coverage in the pen yesterday. It wasn't like, oh my God, we really need this guy to pitch into the seventh. But it was just setting things up for today and the days moving forward. It was a, a big time step up kind of performance. And he has been, his his last two starts have been very promising. And we talked about this maybe last week, that this is his chance now to get regular starts with Freddie Peralta down. Ashby becomes so important because now instead of the sixth guy, the swing guy, he's your fifth starter and you're just going to need him to take the ball essentially every five days. And um, that becomes extremely important for every other pitcher around him. So two really, really promising outings in a row for him. Well, more than that, more than that, really. And I think actually it's kind of, it's the two starts, but then the outing before that was the four innings in relief yeah. right where he strikes out eight yeah and that really seemed to be the moment where he kind of settled into what we've seen him be in the minors where he uses these two phenomenal pitches in his fastball and his slider to really keep hitters off balance tim why don't you walk us through your experience as a 12 strikeout six inning type guy in the past never i mean i couldn't <laughs> do that on a little league field right now no i 
I think what he did really well was, I mean, his slider's fantastic. It plays the lefties and righties just because of the movement on it. But um, he was cruising. He was cruising. He gets to the seventh inning, and I had to go back and look just to make sure. But he didn't throw a fastball uh, in those pitches that he threw. Uh, he was throwing changeups and sliders mainly. And what I thought was amazing is that just to get to him, just to get him out of the game, because he went back out with like 89 pitches. And just to get him out of the game, it took a – a Patrick wisdom with so much power to shoot a ground ball opposite field and then a couple infield base hits, right? Like that right there is what it takes to get to pitchers that are just doing amazing. Anytime you get to someone like Burns or, you know, Woodruff uh, or even Lauer right now, it just seems like it's these little bitty things that the teams have to do. And there's really no way around it. Like, yeah, you'll give up the solo home run every once in a while. That's part of it. That's part of being aggressive in the zone. Uh, but to actually get to a guy, that's what it took. That's what it took to get this guy out of the game. That's how good he was. He was throwing 99 miles an hour, and yet the last inning he goes out there, he's just throwing him whatever he wants, and it's mainly off speed, and that's what it took. So uh, he's he's got – he had 21, 22, 21 swings and misses in 100 pitches. Like, it's, it's impressive. I mean, that's just eight strikeouts on slider. He goes out there with a, a familiarity – with these hitters. He doesn't have to know them. He just has to see how they're up there and manipulate his slider in such a way so it's not on the same bat path as these guys, which is uh, video game-like-esque. That's what you do in Madden, right? You play Madden, you're like, you know, back in the day on Sega, you're like hitting the buttons. Like, that's what he's doing. He's like, oh, I need a little more. He's a guy that can do a little more or a little less when he wants to. And that's pretty impressive for a guy that's, what, just turned 24? I was excited to meet uh, Uncle Andy in, in San Diego, too. I mean, that's, um, you know, nine, anything baseball 1990s, you know, I'm going to be all over. <laughs> and uh, he was energetic. I mean, he was great. He was a nice guy. I was very impressed with Uncle Andy's wardrobe, by the way. He showed up in a navy blue. Tim, you guys had him on the air, right? Navy blue, like dry fit, kind of long sleeve shirt. Very like you could not tell Padres or Brewers. He very much walked that tightrope, which is. He towed the rubber. He told, he told yeah, 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 very much so. And I was, uh, I, I was quite impressed. He's quite an energetic uh, Uncle Andy. So that was pretty fun. Yeah, we, we saw him on the show. He, I think, uh, I think Aaron walked somebody and he's like putting his hands in his face. <laughs> but, <laughs> and he's like, strikes out a guy or gets a weak ground ball. He's like, yeah, you know, I mean, it was, it was good because he was animated, which means he cared, which, you know, a lot of times they teach you, hey, hey just, you know, you're, this is baseball. You got to be more professional, but you could tell emotions were going and, that's what you want. So Ashby's performance was phenomenal. I don't want to take anything away from it. But since we gave love to Trevor Kelly and Miguel Sanchez, let's give some love to Brad Boxberger. Brad Boxberger. Wow. Comes in, no out, space is loaded, and just completely shuts the Cubs down. Gets a strikeout, gets the pitching, her ground out he needs. And what a phenomenal appearance there. And then comes out for a second inning and continues shutting them down. So I just want to make sure we give the appropriate love. We gushed over Hader, uh, we, but it, you know these other guys are important to talk about too, and just give Boxy a little love. Because, well, it's wow. good because I probably maybe said this on the pod too, and I've told Tim this before. The worst part about our job, like in the writers in the clubhouse after the game, is the only time we go talk to Brad Boxberger is when he's given up like a go-ahead homer in the seventh inning, and. On a night like last, and last night was an example. We were talking to Aaron Ashby. We were talking to Josh Hader and waiting on counsel and waiting because they took that photo of Jim Henderson. And uh, and 
hater together. That took a little bit. And, and box had gone to the bus. So like we, we made a point to like reach out to try to say like, Hey, can we talk about this tomorrow? Because we, you got to like give the guy a little bit of love when he does a good job too, because that middle relief is I've Tim, I've told you that before. It's, it's the most thankless thing. And I know it, I recognize it that the only time sometimes we talk to pitchers in those spots are when it's something bad happened. So good for him, something good happened. And incredibly, incredibly, Brad, you know this. He smiled in a photograph that was yeah. shared on Twitter by the by the Brewers on his birthday. Brad Boxberger smiled. I, I, I very rarely you can get it out of him. Photoshopped. I mean, that is like... It was manipulated. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the Delta Dental uh, sponsorship time, you think they photoshopped a smile? Is that like a I new Snapchat secret. filter? That was actually Chris Hook's smile on Brad Boxberger. Yeah. You got me. <laughs> Scrubbed out the scruff. <laughs> All right. Well, we have to take a break, but when we come back, we'll talk about Tyrone Taylor, who's been just destroying baseballs lately. Keston Hero's hot streak. And the guys are going to be so excited because trivia's back. I'm ready this week. I've been studying. All right. Well, stick around. All right, we're back. It's been a while since we tested Adam and Tim's knowledge of specifically old-timey baseball players. So in this segment, I'll give them three names, one real, two fake, and I'll have to pick out the real one. Adam holds a slight lead in the season series of four to three. <laughs> yes. Gentlemen. I'm getting my hotel stationery ready. What episode, so I can write what episode down. are we doing right now? Uh, ten, I believe. Ten, and it's four to three? <laughs> We're, we're yeah. <laughs> now we have skipped Still. trivia two Still. times. We're bad. So. <laughs> All right, Adam. Mm. Yep. Now, a reminder: this is Family Feud style. So, if Adam does not get this wrong, Tim will have a chance to steal. If I remember, that's how the rules work. Adam, which of these names is real? Lucius Luscious, Steady Snail, or Vinegar Bend Mizell? Oh, my God. Um, now, I'll repeat it for your benefit. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm literally writing it down on my hotel, hotel station. Lucius Luscious. There's four words in there. I can't spell. Steady snail <laughs> or vinegar bend mazelle. Is, is steady related to, like, Blake Snell? Is that a distant great uncle? Uh, it's I'm, snail. Uh, steady oh, snail. I see. Okay. Oh, I should have known that. I, I'm going to go with vinegar bend. Adam, 5-3 on the year. Vinegar Ooh. Ben Mazzell pitched oh, in 368 games Whoa, from wow. 1952 to 62 for the Cards, the Pirates, and the Mets. He's a two-time All-Star and won one of the, his World Series rings with the Pirates in 1960. Wow. is That's, that's the Bill Mazeroski homer, right? Yeah. So that's why you knew it. Is that That's <laughs> one of your favorite teams of all Goodness. time, right? Okay, good. Good for me. <laughs> And good All for right, Vinegar Bend. Your turn. You can make it back to a one-point lead on the season. I got no shot. Let's go, though. <laughs> <laughs> Which of these names is real? Chicken Hawks, Tommy Toon, Twiggy Passion. Wow. Chicken Hawks, <laughs> Tommy Toon, Twiggy Passion. This seems like it's like the failed list of Looney Tunes characters. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I like Chicken Hawk. Let's go with Chicken Hawk. I had a teammate in college. We called him Chicken Hawk, so I think that's it. Holy cow, guys. 
Wow. I think this is the first time both of you have gotten your own questions right. Chicken Hawks played from 1921 to 25 for the New York Yankees and the Phillies. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Batted 316 with seven home runs for his career. <laughs> How did your teammate get that nickname? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. But he was one of the only guys that ever uh, knew that threw a real uh, fork ball. Oh. Where you, it's it's not really like a split finger where you just kind of, you know, get the thing. You have to really tuck it down in there. Um, and it actually wreaks havoc on your elbow. Uh, but if you can figure out how to throw it, it's, it's one of the most, it's, it, it's one of the most devastating pitches that's ever been invented, but, um, yeah, it'll, it'll hurt the batter and the pitcher in the same, same motion. <laughs> it'll come back somehow though. The, everything seems to come inside. Remember like when everybody was throwing a split junior Guerra and there was like this era where nobody's all of a sudden gonna, everybody had a split. Nobody's throwing a fork ball. <laughs> There's no trainer that's going. Yeah. <laughs> Fork ball's the answer. Yeah. He doesn't spend enough <laughs> Isn't time that, on the So IL. it's the fork ball and the screwball that are like just yeah. elbow destroyers, right? Uh, I mean, not really a screwball. You can pronate a ton and, and throw a decent screwball. But like when you start manipulating, you can feel on your elbow. Here, I'll show you guys on our little video. If you get your fingers and you spread them apart, you can feel something down in your elbow that moves. That right yeah, yeah. there is, you know, the difference in like a split finger and a fastball. It puts strain on the that part of the elbow. Uh, but a fork ball is on another level. It's like, it's a split finger on steroids, if I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> Maybe I'm just thinking it because, uh, what was it? Uh, Brent Honeywell, was that his name for the Rays? Recent prospect coming up who threw a screwball. And like he, before he could get to the majors, I mean, he's made the majors, but he kept hurting his elbow. And his big thing was throwing a screwball. So maybe that's where I get that idea from. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe. All right. Well, instead of talking about players in the past and raised prospects who injured their elbow, let's talk about some very, very hot brewers. Because since May 18th, Tyrone Taylor is pacing the team with five homers, 15 RBI, and a 341 average. Tim, what do you make of this mini breakout from Tyrone? Is it a preview of what he can do with everyday playing time? I think so. I mean, I wrote down somewhere what he, how many bats he got in May or in April. He got 41 at-bats in April. He batted 195, zero home runs. In May, he has 82 at-bats. He's batting 280 and has six homers. That's pretty impressive. And on the road trip, he's 10 for 31, three homers and 10 RBIs. Um, to me, he it, this is just a correlation of probably what he's been able to do, but we've only seen him in little glimpses here and there. Uh, this is the first time he gets a chance to fill in and play all the time, and the dude's diving into walls. You know, he's not just doing it with the bat. He's diving into walls. That'll get you playing time without a, without a, you know, good batting average or anything. But he's, I, I, I dug a little deeper just because I think this is relevant. Um, but off speed in the zone, particularly down in the zone, he is one of the top five in baseball that can do damage. And it all comes back to keeping his hands back. If you look at his, the way he bats, it's similar to a Mike Trout. You know, on the fastball, he can foul off a pitch that's inside and do damage if it's a fastball away. Uh, but if you throw off speed, he does not lose his hands. The whole point of a pitcher throwing off speed is to, a guy to move his hands towards the pitcher. And, you know, as soon as you do that, there's nothing you can do. But he keeps his hands back so well, and a majority of his home runs are just curveballs that maybe necessarily aren't terrible, but he makes them look terrible when he hits them 400 feet. So, for Tyrone Taylor, I, this is this is a wonderful moment for him and wonderful moment for us getting to see a guy that's just been sticking it out so long with an opportunity and he's just he's grabbing the bull by the horns metaphorically, but it's really happening. 
He's one of my favorite personalities in the clubhouse. Kind of getting away from his performance before we get Adam's take on his recent hot streak. Because all the guys have great personalities. Like, we really do have a great clubhouse when it comes to that experience in particular. But he's like the guy who I feel like is more just like a dude. Like, he's just, like, a, the friend you have from college. <laughs> he's and, sick all the time. That's sick. Let's go. Yeah, right? <laughs> like, he, and like he's, like, just, like, walking into the ballpark, super casual. Uh, he, you know, we saw him deliver his luggage to the area where they set up everything up. And he just drops his truck off, takes his luggage out, and whips it down <laughs> to the end of the... Uh, the little ramp area, like everything is very like your good friend in college. And it seems like Tyrone Taylor is the type of person you've hung out with in your past. And, you know, despite his success, despite that, he just still is that dude. And even when you talk to him about baseball, he takes it in. He takes it very seriously, of course, but it's also at the same time very casually. He's he's just so interesting in that way. And it, it makes it fun to root for him when he's succeeding in this way. Especially when he's performing at such a high level every day, Adam. Well, I mean, he's a guy sometimes when we're waiting for him by his locker, he'll look and go, oh, do you want to talk to me? And it's like, well, you know, you homered and you made like this incredible catch against the wall. So, <laughs> yeah, we'd like your thoughts a little. You know, And he, he's, he is kind of aw shucks about it. And I think the everyman thing, remember his big league debut where he got, he was a late September call up and he had to call his boss at FedEx and say, you know, I'm sorry I was supposed to start this job, but <laughs> I have it turns out I have another job this month that I probably should go for. So I think <laughs> he started in a good uh, everyman position. And um, look, opportunity, man. Uh, Hunter Renfro is down. Tyrone Taylor has the tools to, to step right in there. And he produces when they need a little power. He's hit big home runs, homered in both ends of the doubleheader yesterday. And... Um, just again, there's been a lot of like stepping up on this road trip. This has been a pretty successful road trip so far for the Brewers. And it's because players in spots where they've had a little hole because of an injury or like hater being away, um, someone has stepped up to fill that that position. So Tyrone Taylor certainly uh, qualifies there. And he said three or four defensive highlights. Yeah, that play against the wall yesterday was sick to steal his catchphrase. I mean... Very tough as with the fan with the glove kind of in his face. I, I mean, take the fan out of the you know equation that the concrete wall at the top there. Nobody's nobody's like, yes, I can't wait to run into the wall in Wrigley. Pick a spot in Wrigley that you'd want to just kind of glance into. No shot, Maybe man. Carlos Gomez. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He probably has <laughs> knocked himself out. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this about uh, Tyrone Taylor before we get off the subject is he's only seventh on the team in at bats. So Willie Adamas right now still has seven more at-bats than Tyrone Taylor. Uh, but Tyrone Taylor has just one less extra base hits. Tyrone has 14 extra base hits. He is doing damage. And if you look at runners in scoring position, he's 10 for 26, batting 385. This guy thrives on people on base. Um, and he's got more RBIs than Renfro or McCutcheon or Yelich that have more at-bats and more opportunities than him. So... That right there just shows what he is in a snapshot. You kind of hope this continues. You kind of hope he's out there every single day in some form or fashion because he has definitely earned it. Well, look, Renfro is getting close as we sit here. So it's going to be a decision about center field. And Lorenzo Cain hit a homer. That was a good a good time to hit a homer and get into one for Lorenzo Cain. 
and he gives you great defense. I mean, everybody knows what kind of guy he is, A+. plus. But there's a decision to be made there probably when Hunter Renfro comes back about how do you split playing time and center between Kane and Taylor because Taylor's a pretty good defender as well. And there might be another decision because, you know, you'd think you'd get some of those at-bats still through DH, but another guy who could occupy that DH spot is having quite the offensive surge since being called back up on May 18th. Kesson Hero, three homers, eight RBI, and a 400 on base percentage with a 1,040 OPS. Thoughts on his recent success, Adam, and should the crew prioritize getting his bat in the lineup more regularly? Well, the question is where. It's like the same question we've we've talked about. I think Rowdy Telez isn't as hot as he was when he was player of the week, but I still think he's going to be the regular first baseman. So, that, so, you know, maybe you're just happy with what you're getting from Hira because you're putting him in the spots where you want to put him, and sometimes that can play into a guy's success. There's a push that I hear on social media, which is always dangerous to start a sentence that way, but <laughs> people want to see him play more against righties because he's, he, you know, he often will get at bats mid-game against a lefty, even though his numbers against righties are better. And there's this complicated way that Craig Council and um, Pat Murphy think about that when they're making those decisions. And it's basically, you know, you, you got to think about all the puzzle pieces together and how who do you want in that at bat in that moment. It's not always as clear as just like Keston here has great numbers against righties. That's always hit him against righties. Um, that's not a very good explanation, but it's, they do have a complicated way kind of that they think about that because his numbers, his splits are a little funky. They're a little different than what you'd think just when you see him. So I, I, to me, I sort of think there's a case to be made for be happy with the production you're getting and the role he's in and kind of ride that for a while. Yeah. I mean, if you go specifically on splits, they're straight up right identical right now. Lefties and righties. He's bat, he's got 31 at bats against lefties, 31 at bats against righties. And if you go start scrolling through here, 11 hits against righties, five home runs, 10 RBIs. He has six walks, batting 355 with an OPS that's almost 1300. To me, it's hard to ignore that. He just punishes right-handed pitching, you know. And they have a lot of guys on the team that will hit righties very well. They all seemingly struggle. It seems like batting against lefties, Yelich actually hits lefties better than righties. But I think there's a certain point when you don't play matchup. I remember lefties, they'd bring in lefties to face uh, Aoki. Aoki hit lefties fantastically, and he'd be coming up batting 300. And what would happen? You know, Bruce Bochy would go out and say, hey, we're going to bring in the lefty to face him. And then Aoki would punish this lefty with base hit up the middle, scores a run. And you're like, well, I played the matchup. Sometimes a matchup is not going to, it's not going to work. And I think that there's moments where Keston is the best option to, to do damage against a righty for whatever reason. You wish he hit lefties better. You wish those splits were reversed, but this is what they are. And the power is there and you can't ignore it. I wonder if there's an option. We've seen McCutcheon struggles against righties kind of continue in terms of success. Sent, you know, last year he had those struggles. Very popular talking point in spring training. I wonder if there's an option to play Keston a little bit more in that DH role and get McCutcheon a little bit more rest because I think the fresher McCutcheon is the better he it plays so I wonder if that's something that the team can look into going forward I think McCutcheon still deserves regular at bats I still think you want him in the lineups pretty regularly but just as a way to get you know a more veteran guy a little bit more off time while still playing your hotter bat in the lineup that's an option that I think is just speculatively something to think on where 
it might end up res- getting a little bit more offense going for the team while benefiting a player down the long run. Because I think, I don't believe that McCutcheon isn't going to hit righties. We Like, you listen to him talk about it in spring training. I don't think that's going to be a long-term issue. But I think the healthier he is and the fresher he is, the better he is at it. And I wonder if that's a role. I, I think we'll get some answers maybe before we are back together next week because Hunter Renfro's close. Willie Adamas is getting really close. So they're about to be sort of barring something else happening close to full strength as a position player group. And then we can start to see if they do some of those things, right? you know? Right. Absolutely. I think by, ne- I think by next week or at least the pod after that, we'll have a better feel for how those pieces are going to fit again with. And there's going to be tough decisions too. Cause you got Brasso and Jace Peterson that are doing well. They lately, they've been playing good defense last however many games and they've been swinging the bat and, Getting walks and getting on base, like, I don't know, man. The Brewers are good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and this is the morning of May 31st, and with our luck, I mean, I know they're not necessarily eligible. Uh, Well, Willie is, but he's obviously hasn't played his game in Nashville, just got sent there for his rehab assignment. With our luck, some of this stuff is going to be decided in the next hour (laughs) because that's just how things go. renders this thing completely, (laughs) completely useless. You think we'd have that stuff locked in, you know, being with the team, <laughs> but even we don't get all the answers ahead of time. So the team's playing exceptionally well right now. And that's part of why Craig Council's at this moment, two wins from tying the Brewers record for wins as a manager and three wins away from breaking it. Tim, you played with him. What makes him such a good manager? Is it that he won't call up certain people, um, in, in side armors in 2017 in AAA? I've heard you talk about that a couple times. Is that what makes him a good manager? Or that was me t- uh, taking a shot at you playing your game. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> uh, it, it's it's a tricky business because it's a lot of times you rely on just your GM or your assistant GM to just sometimes throw a dart Hey, who do we have? What arms do we have? And that's kind of the way it was. Uh, even when I was coming up, it was just, hey, we need an arm. Who's doing well? Who's on the 40-man roster? And it was just kind of that flippant at times. And, you know, we have to, we're down the minor leagues thinking, okay, there's some methodical plan to what's going on. And then you find out when the curtain falls a little bit, it's kind of like, ah, you know, it's just the right place, right time. Or maybe you pitched the day before and this guy gets to go up or whatever that looks like. But I think now they have so much data. I think they have so many people that are on that data and they all sit there and come together and they go, okay, what's our plan for this guy? I think it's very individualized. So when you start calling up people, when you start making moves on the field, it's, there's not only, you know, an instinct behind it, but there's also numbers to back it up. Hey, this guy plays really well, you know, whether if it's plays well on the road or hits lefties well, or he's a day gamesman or whatever that looks like, um, they make moves that benefit the player because they're individualized, because they have the ability to do that. And they've probably had the ability to do that all along, but they've really never devoted any time to it or people in charge of doing that. Well, to me, Tim, you nailed it with sort of everybody's different and the job is managing personalities as much as anything. And uh, Kurt Hogue, um, for the, the Journal Sentinel, credit to him, he spent a lot of time asking a ton of players over the last couple of months. I thought this was a great story they did earlier this week. What this question, what makes council a good manager? And the thing that struck me most about it was how different every answer was. And I think that in itself told why Craig council is a good manager. 
He knows what each player needs to be the, this is a council phrase, the best version of themselves. And then he helps them unlock that. And it's so different for every player. Some guys want to be left alone. Some guys want to be the coaches and council to be very hands-on. Um, some guys want to know everything uh, that the that management is thinking. Other guys don't care, and they just want to show up and play. And um, th- I think that the job of kind of cataloging mentally those traits of all of your players and then handling them in the way that gets the best performance out of them is the job of managing. And, you know, you talk about Phil Garner. That's how I spent the between games yesterday of the doubleheader is I, I spoke on the phone with Phil Garner and it was, I mean, that dude is like the best baseball guy. I, I remember helping out in the postseason when he was Astros manager and he still had the cigar in the clubhouse when managers did that. So he'd sit there before a game with a cigar and he'd talk for like 90 minutes about whatever, uh, just the guy who can sit around and talk baseball all day long forever. And, and what he said, what impresses him about what council's doing is the era in which he's doing it. And what Phil Garner said, I'm scooping my own story here, but anyway, (laughs) what he said is every manager, no matter their era, has different challenges associated with the era they manage in. And with Craig Council and Garner's view, it's that there are so many voices right now that managers are hearing from. Everybody has an opinion about how decisions should be made. And it's a very collaborative sport right now in terms of setting the lineup, roster moves, in-game management going over after games, how that game was managed. And council does it, it seems a really good job of um, being a sure of himself to take in all that input and, and B just kind of managing all those voices and, and getting, getting the information to the players in a way that helps them be good instead of feeling overwhelmed. So um, it was really interesting talking to Gar because it's a, it's a different era already from when he managed and it's not been that long. And he, he, he said he's just, you know, obviously he's from afar, he's a fan of Craig Council. I think coming in as a fan, we talk about like the collaboration aspect that's needed to be successful. And I knew that Craig was, you know, obviously a great player manager and also someone who really embraced analytics to help his team and players find success in situations that fit them best. But I think the thing I've come to appreciate more as someone who gets to see some of the behind the scenes aspects is what he does to empower his coaches to be successful and the way he sets them up to work with their players. Because it's, I think it's, we always tend to look at it in a very one dimensional way from the sidelines of like, he's working directly with Christian Yelich. How's he going to manage where Yelich is hitting in the lineup? But it's also, where is, what is he doing to make Chris Hook successful? What is he doing to make Quentin Berry successful? What is he doing to make Connor Dawson and Ozzie Timmons successful? And I think that's very interesting to watch from the sidelines and watch how he helps them get the input they need, the space they need, the tools they need, and also get the respect from the players so that they're getting information across and helping the team in the ways that they can best succeed. I think that's something that we don't really get to see unless you're in this in this everyday aspect or in the clubhouse where it's something I've definitely come to appreciate more about council is it's not just him empowering the players. It's him empowering his staff. Well, and to me that does that come back to like being comfortable in your own skin and just being sort of like sure of yourself in the sense that you don't have to control everything. You can empower people around you to do things. And I even think of that in terms of like, look in his job twice a day, he has to answer for 
every decision they make. And I don't know how I would handle that. Like what, you know, pick apart my stories from that double header last night when it's, I'm, I'm exhausted and it's, you know, 1130 at Wrigley and the blowers are going and I'm trying to write and they're cleaning up the ballpark. I mean, if you picked apart my work, I, I might struggle with that a little bit. And he has that happen twice a day, every day and handles it in such a way that I don't know. He handles it in a, in a really good way. And I think it goes back to just being kind of sure of yourself. I, that's the best way to me. To I, I would say it's, if you want to go deeper, it's more of an authenticity. He's very transparent. I know maybe not with, with us now that we're media, but in the clubhouse and with his coaches, he's, he's the same guy. You know, he encourages other guys to be transparent. I, I don't want to single out a, a single moment, but I do remember in September years ago, there was a guy that, you know, had, op, we had optional BP and there was a guy just sitting in the clubhouse that was a rookie. He was just chilling on his phone and council came in. He's like, what are you doing? He goes, Oh, uh, BP's optional. Council's like, this is when he was a player. Council's like, not for you, bud. Like, like <laughs> it's not you. Like you, you can't be in here. It's not optional for you. You know, like you're the guy that's trying to be one of these other guys, you know, try to fill in like you, you need to get out there and hit. So I, I think there's just a level of just calling out some of the stuff that needs to be called out, but maybe not in a mean way, but in a very transparent way. And if you encourage transparency, you know, you're the freest guy in the room. You can walk in there and people have the freedom to talk to you and you have the freedom to talk to them, not in a mean way, but in a very easy going. And I think that's the kind of the aura that he walks around with and his coaches do the same. That's why there's the communication between all of them um, is, is an elite clubhouse and atmosphere to be around. All right. Well, we need to get to another break, but when we return, we're taking an early look at all-star prospects, giving our Saturday week and talking concerts. So stay tuned. And we're back wrapping things up with the everyone's favorite, the rapid round, because, you know, we, we have a lot of opinions to get out there that are about baseball, about not baseball. We had some concerts at the ballpark we're going to talk about. And we have some big concerts coming to Milwaukee. We're going to talk about that. But first, Adam, I know I'm excited about your Saturday of the week. Oh, really? Why don't you give it off to us? Are you? I am. Okay. Uh, I will say 40 for two reasons. One, it is the record uh, for a scoreless streak for a pitcher, scoreless appearances. And Josh Hader, as we speak, is one away from matching that. Um, it's also 40 years this week since Harvey Keene was named Brewers manager. And I led my award-winning, not really, newsletter about that this week with a story digging into some, Robin Yount had told stories about Harvey Keene as a hitting coach. It's an awesome story about getting screamed at in a hotel room in 1974. And uh, Ted Simmons tells this great story about Harvey Keene's first and only team meeting after he was named manager where he ambled out on his wooden leg to the middle of the clubhouse and said, I don't like team meetings, and this is the last one, go play. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. Uh, great. Those guys loved Harvey Keene so much, and uh, they loved Audrey Keene, his wife. They'd go to their house for dinner and spring training, and they'd go over to the bar, Caesars International, that uh, Harvey and Audrey ran. And Audrey had this great quote in the thing. She's like, where will you ever see – a, a, a one-legged manager who owns a tavern across the street from the stadium. It was such a cool era of Brewers baseball. And uh, 40 years ago this week, the Brewers were 22 and 24 when Harvey Keene took over. And you know the rest. They took off. Yeah, yeah some good things happened. Tim, 
what's your stat of the week? Stat of the week. Uh, I, I got two, but I can't find the actual count on one of them. One of them was when uh, Aaron Ashby pitched against you, Darvish, uh, in San Diego. Uh, it was Fielder's Choices. Fielder's Choices in that game. Um, I guess I can count them up in real time if you guys want to hold on for just a moment. Eight. I believe it was, if I remember, because you called this out on the broadcast, eight. Could have been 11. I'm not really sure. Oh, it might have been 11. Yeah, Perdomo <laughs> had four out of uh, five hitters that he faced. But anyway, I just thought that was a record number of like fielder's choices. Like You couldn't quite turn a double play, but you, you catch weak ground balls. And anyway, that's just a sign of Aaron Ashby and how many ground balls that he gets. And uh, pretty amazing in that way. But I guess if I go very specifically with a stat, I'm going to go 833. Ooh. 833 is what Keston Hira hits middle in on anything overall. Oh. I think that's pretty big. <laughs> I, I I think hitting 833 on anything is pretty good. Yeah, the little square middle in, 833. I have a little mm-hmm. uh, website that tells me this, and I just find that pretty high. You know, especially, I mean, it's only, I don't know how many at-bats, but uh, it doesn't really matter. You throw something in there, you may not see it again. All right. My set of the week is negative 0.24. And according to baseball reference, that is Devin Williams' fit in the last eight games, which I don't think I've ever seen a negative fit. (laughs) So apparently, I think it's just an error, but even still, a 0.24 if is insane. Yeah, I didn't know that was possible. Because Devin Williams has been that good especially in August, but over his last eight games, since he gave up the three runs on May 10th against Cincinnati, he has been absolutely phenomenal at, I mean, we're we're seeing the Devin Williams we came to expect coming into the season, right? He's been striking out the side on a regular basis. He's been uh, mixing his fastball and changeup in phenomenal ways. I think he's adjusted. I think what we saw was, and Tim, I think I've heard you talk about this on the podcast or on the broadcast, not the podcast. Ooh, you listen. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I do. It's almost like my job to listen. But he early in the season, he was doing the Devin Williams thing where he relies on his change up and just goes out there and says, hit this unhittable pitch. But hitters have adjusted to that and they were waiting on it and they were waiting back on it. And if they threw if he threw one that caught too much of the zone, they were getting hits on it. Otherwise, they were walking on it. But since he's been mixing in his fastball a lot more into significant impact. So I think we saw Devin Williams kind of mid early season readjust his pitching approach. And we're seeing that ultimate one, two combination in the eighth and ninth again, which has been very fun to watch from a spectator. And I think Devin Williams at the top of his game is just, so much fun to witness because again he has a changeup that probably is one of a kind in baseball maybe Pablo Lopez compares but aside from that it's one you're watching a player with literally throwing the best version of his pitch and then he also has a dominant fastball on top of it well, I'll, say, I'll try to be real quick on Devin Williams. Uh, it's hard to do that because there's so much <laughs> to impact on what you said. I will say this. He throws a changeup. Everyone in the world knows he throws a changeup, and he has plenty of guts to go out there and still throw it knowing guys are looking for it. That takes a lot of guts. And here's what you find. Uh, eventually, guys will either learn to not swing at it or they get pretty good swings on it. 
Um, and he would still throw it. So I think what you're finding out is he realizes I got to be able to throw that fastball. So now it's now it's having the guts to go, you know what? I know what exactly my best pitch is, but I have to shy away from it because we're at a, a turning point that, like you said, about about seven or eight days uh, outings ago where he finally realized, man, these guys are sitting straight up change up and they're spitting on it if it's too low. So what do you have to do? You have to start throwing the fastball. And what we've seen in his last seven innings of pitch, he's only given up four hits, one walk. That's because he's tightened up the fastball and he learns when to throw the change up off of that. And then 13 strikeouts. You know, sometimes it takes a lot of guts to do it, but you have to reassign those guts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you got to you got to sit there and go, OK, this is what I do really well, but it's not being effective because of another, you know, a team's approach. Uh, you have to readjust that. So I, it props to him for sitting there being willing to grow and learn in that moment. All right, Tim, with all star voting around the corner, how many brewers get all star bids this year? Last year we had five tied a franchise record. Um, well, I think I think Hater yes. is a must. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I it's I don't really know much about the All Star stuff. I don't really, I haven't really looked around the league to see how many guys are doing well in certain positions. I will say this though: one time I was had a chance in 2009 to make the All Star team, and I didn't make it in AAA. And I thought, why didn't I make it? And so I talked to Don Money, my manager, and I said, dude, how come I didn't make this? My numbers are better than almost anybody else's is starting rotation across the board. And he goes, oh, he voted like a month ago. <laughs> I, was, what? I was like, but a month ago, you know, I, my numbers were average and I hit a stride there for about four starts where I did amazing. And I was like, this is my one chance, man. It's hard to be an all-star, you know? And so I was like, yeah, we voted a month ago. So to say anything right now is, is to me is just, too early. Anything can happen. A guy can go off in a month. We saw Freddie Freeman last year, right? Early on in the season, he wasn't doing hardly anything. Guy turns everything around in about a month, a month and a half, becomes an all-star. So to me, I'm, I'm going to just err on the side of it's too early. How dare yes, you? Josh Hader. That is <laughs> yeah. not what broadcast is for. We'll break you yet, I'm not gonna, Tim. Yeah. Play we'll, it safe. We'll break you yet. Adam, how about you? I'll go. Um, I'll start with three. Yes. Because I think the locks are Hader, Corbin Burns and Eric Lauer. So I'll start with those three locks and then who the heck knows, because there's replacements. There's as Tim, you know, Tim's right. There's room for somebody to get really hot when they start voting and picking teams. So I don't know when the players vote because a lot of these picks are player picks. So at some point they're going to go around the clubhouse and hand out these sheets and stats and everybody sits down and does their voting. It's always fun to kind of watch them collaborate a little bit or ask questions or it's kind of, I think it's a really cool thing. Yeah. I don't know how many years it's been since they added that, but it's cool that players get a say. I would say I'm going to go four because I think you had those three locks and then the Brewers always seem to sneak a position player in, whether it's through replacements or because the fans really know how to show up and vote. Because if there's one thing that Milwaukee fans do better than everyone else, it's voting on the Internet. Yeah. What is that? <laughs> yep. Why is that? I don't know. I was part it's of it. Always I don't know. Fans in baseball. They just I mean, I'm passion. happy. I'm I'm glad, but but it's it's a strange phenomenon. Well, Brad, which guy? Who do you think? I think we feel so small because we are the smallest market mm. that we want to be represented, and this is a way we can be represented. Okay. So I think it's just we're so passionate about not being forgotten about or being accurately portrayed is probably the better way. So I think it's that. Who's your guy? Are you, do you have one in mind or are you just saying general? No, I'm just saying four. Oh, okay. uh, Ezra asked how many brewers get all-star bids. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I'm cheating. 
Boy, you are really looking very closely at Ezra's yeah. outline here and sticking to it. I'm good. Good for you there. Yeah, it's almost like again my job. <laughs> well, I want to say this: if there's anybody that's in striking distance as far as like position player wise, I think you got to go Rowdy Telez. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. uh, he's batting 241. He's got 10 homers and 35 RBIs. That right there is striking distance. Where if he can continue that and then get a little bit hot as things increase i i think there's a real shot there i mean that those are well, those are decent numbers and i see a hunter Ren- who's the last brewer's first baseman Who, who's i'm sorry to interrupt you brad but who's the last brewer's first baseman prince yeah to make the all-star team probably prince yeah what he was uh the diamond or the one in arizona in 2011 <laughs> yeah he picked ricky weeks for the uh derby and then derby. got booed mer- the, the, I think that home run derby set an all-time record for booze. It was fantastic. <laughs> Poor Ricky. He didn't pick, was it Justin Upton? Yes. Good times. Uh, I could see Rowdy Telez, I could see Willie Adamas, and I could see Hunter Renfro all getting in. Yeah, with like a big June. Mm-hmm. So, but one always seems to get in. And uh, it, whether it's replacement or a coach selection or something of that matter, uh, I, I think we'll end up with four. Adam. Summerfest and concert season in Milwaukee is basically start. Who's one artist you've yet to see in concert but really want to see? Oh, that is such an easy answer for me because uh, I went to journalism school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I am a member of the Baseball Writers Association of America, a proud voting member, and I have never seen Bruce Springsteen in concert, which seems impossible because for whatever reason, sports writers are obsessed with Bruce Springsteen. And I like Bruce Springsteen a lot, so I, I would definitely go see him and really enjoy it. But, you know, Anthony Kastrovins comes to my mind, our great MLB.com columnist, has seen Bruce 1,100 times and knows every recording of every album he's ever put out. So, easy, Bruce Springsteen. I, I'd like to see Bruce. All right, Tim, it, a concert you'd love to see. Like any concert? I can just any dream concert. it up. Oh, man. Weird Al. Or- <laughs> yeah, I've already seen him four or five 11 times. No, um, I don't know. I'm going to say I'd really like to see maybe like a Matchbox 20. I really, I just feel like they got a ton of hits. Just, I would sing along the entire time. I've already seen Creed in concert back in high school. So check that one off. Boo this man. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. Maybe the Rolling Stones. We have such timely, timely answers here. This is really going (laughs) to, this pod's going to take off. We're, We're really getting into the current culture here. Guys. Tim Dillard is trapped in 2000 to 2004. Can someone free him, please? What? Oh, wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. Oh. I, yeah, I said Rolling Stones, too. So I have something a little modern, but maybe a little like she got too popular now. So people are starting to hate her again because that's how the world works. But I would really like to see a Billie Eilish concert, but I'd be very uncomfortable at a Billie Eilish concert because I feel like they'd all be my niece's age. Everyone there. And I'd be like this 30 year old man standing in this crowd of like teenagers and I'd be like, I need to go. But I've become fascinated with how her and her brother produce music because they tend to incorporate these sounds they find out in the world into their music. And there's a lot of production layers that go into it. They're both incredibly smart and they're going to be like the youngest people to EGOT. And they're probably going to EGOT multiple times. They're just geniuses when it comes to their music. So that's that's mine. When we left Atlanta the last day when the Brewers played there, uh, there's a venue right in that battery there. There's a concert venue and there was a K-pop concert. And I forget what the band was or what do you call it, the group. 
but it was like, there was no, there, there were 5,000 people probably in line kind of snaking around the ballpark waiting to get in this venue. And none of them were older than 17. Like there were no, I don't know how everybody got, well, they, if they're 17, they can drive, but like it was all kids. So maybe we should try to get into some K-pop. All right. Uh, well, we're going to be trying to become right. younger and <laughs> moving cooler. on. Um, Adam is going to bleach his tips. Um, I'm going to get a nose ring. So we're, we're going I to become Panama city, 1997. <laughs> we're going to become younger and cooler by the next time we come back. So watch us. We're all going to make Tic Tacs and <laughs> uh, we're going to oh, be doing God. dances so that's all we have for this time but thank you for listening and wait for when we come back as teenage spirited youthful just energetic people who have a lot to include about the current state of culture in the meantime don't forget to follow our host you can find tim dillard at dim tillard on twitter and instagram and you can hear him on valley sports wisconsin in the pre-game post-game show and sometimes on the broadcast Look for Adam McAlvey at Adam McAlvey on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Look for his work on Brewers.com. It's always fantastic. Of course, make sure you're following the Brewers on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Or as I say, TikTok. And we'll see you next week.